Today, we speak to Alan Christensen, a board-certified naturopathic endocrinologist who focuses on thyroid care. Alan is a New York Times bestselling author who recently wrote the book, The Hormone Healing Cookbook, which we'll talk about today. Our conversation with Alan today was about what are the different foods that may have an effect on hormones. He doesn't talk much about the lab values in hormones. He talks about five key symptoms that if you have... That includes night sweats, fatigue, insomnia, etc. Five of them. I'll let you listen to the podcast. If you have those symptoms, you definitely have a hormonal imbalance. And here's a way of cooking that may help you with that. We talked about testosterone, things that may be able to increase testosterone in men or women, if that's what they desire, and different foods that have a positive impact on hormones. seems like one of his favorites was beets. We talked a little bit more about beets and its health benefits. My conversation with Alan Christensen, the author of the Hormone Healing Cookbook. Let's go. Welcome to the Dr. Geo Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo where it is my intention to help you with your prostate health and how to live better with age. We have our guy, Dr. Alan Christensen here with his book. Alan, thank you so much. The Hormone Healing Cookbook, man. Congratulations on yet another fabulous book. Thank you so much, my friend. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. Um, so tell me, what, what was the impetus behind this book? So you've written numerous book on um, thyroid function and dysfunction, how to deal with that. Uh, you had a reset, I believe, diet book, if I remember. Uh, uh, now you have this hormone healing book, uh, hormone healing cookbook. So what you're Mouthful implying here is <laughs> what we eat has an impact on our hormones. You know, in a big way. Tell me more. Yeah, so impetus, you asked about that. So two two big things. Uh, the last three books were thematic ways to reset certain issues. You mentioned that, yeah, thyroid issues, uh, weight and metabolism, adrenal health, and ways to do that with a dietary program. And mm -hmm. those included some basic meal plans and some recipes. People did those, uh, good feedback. And then the, the questions afterwards were, hey, can I get more recipes? So that was one big impetus. The other one was that the last book, The Thyroid Reset, I spent about a year and a half, almost like a monk, just doing medical literature reviews. You know, I spent so much time on that. And I came across all kinds of studies showing how just simple, common, everyday foods in like not crazy amounts could have radical benefits on hormones besides just thyroid health. But they didn't belong in that book, right? So, so yeah, mm. all these data sets that I wanted to share that were helpful and a lot of folks wanting new recipes. So that was mm. the things that collided. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, you know, obviously, you know, so, you know, my audience, primarily men. And, you know, when you think male hormones, all you think about is testosterone, uh, dihydrotestosterone, D-H-E-A-S. But men have thyroids, too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they have other hormones that, that women have. And women have testosterone, too. And men have estradiol. So tell me what you know about you know how men can optimize their it's going to be very general their hormone levels let's just say yeah. um and certainly from a from a food perspective you know it's a funny thing i put a lot of thought into that when i was putting the book together and some of the first iterations you know could have been pretty pretty nerdy about which hormones do what and which ones are off for you but over time i don't know i've come to think that 
we know a lot. I mean, we collectively in medical world, we know a lot about what does what, but there's so much that we don't know. And there's mm. some things we can measure, but there's so many things we can't measure about hormones. There's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes and a lot of ways in which someone may have, you know, a hormone level that doesn't fit their clinical symptomology. Alan, in other words, the labs look good. Mm-hmm. They're within normal range. So yeah, Alan, we have a situation where, you know, we do blood work and the hormones look great right within normal range of course we can you know testosterone the range is between 300 and a thousand so you know that's a wide range right but let's just say i don't know 500 but they still show there's they have symptoms same thing with thyroid Mm -hmm. what are the things what are the signs that we're looking for to determine yeah well the hormones on a blood panel looks good but no you're having you know hormonal imbalances what are we looking for you know we're looking for five big symptoms Uh, first one's weight and this mm-hmm. could be can't drop a pound or it only comes off with extreme efforts or just comes despite right back what or, they do, dietarily, they do. exercise. Mm-hmm. Try mm-hmm. real hard and it doesn't want to budge or it shoots right back. Next is fatigue. You know, you run down, can't get through the day, don't enjoy exercise, don't recover well from it. You know, big thing there. Um, sleep, uh, can't get to sleep, don't stay asleep throughout the night, poor quality of sleep, hot flashes. Really excited to talk to you and your audience about this. One thing I saw in the book is that there's so much data about how this is a bigger symptom in men than is often talked about. And we Mm. know this with certain conditions and certain treatments, but even apart from that, a lot of guys suffer from these. And then last up would be brain fog. So memory, enthusiasm, recall, creativity. Yeah, those are the top five things. If you know you've got one of those, then there are some ways to make a difference. But we don't know necessarily... What hormone? I mean, this could be any, this, this is thyroid, this is testosterone, this is free testosterone, this could be any, so we don't know just from those five symptoms, which hormones are most imbalanced, but we know there's an imbalance there somewhere. So this is pretty cool. The literature that I came across would look at people that had these these various symptoms and would then do dietary interventions and watch outcomes. And some of that literature would take people who the symptoms were there for known reasons, you know, fatigue after a stroke, fatigue after chemo or something. But in many cases, there was no clear explanation. And that's not to say that you shouldn't get one when one's available. You know, we never want to ignore symptoms and ignore your medical health. But if you've done some due diligence and these things persist, even not knowing any deeper issue about what's doing what, there are things that you can do to help. What are those things? Well, <laughs> the time those, has come. Those things are things <laughs> you than, put on your fork. I want people, and I really do, look, you're one of my most uh, trusted colleagues. And when you say, hey, Gio, I have this book, I automatically get it because I know you and I know the effort that you put behind your work. Um, so I want to let my audience know that the Hormone Healing Cookbook um, it, it's good. Uh, I've looked through it. Excellent recipes. I haven't tried many yet. I have to actually get in the kitchen and do them. Excellent recipes. And um, and and I, I'm excited to get going on that. So what are, and if you can focus a little bit more, if you can, to my prod- predominantly male audience, what are the type of things that they should look for? What are the type of things they should eat? And what are the type of things they should stay away from if they want to optimize their hormone levels? And if you can, if there's a direct link with one hormone versus another, another, let us know. Yeah, all about all about symptoms, improving symptoms. You know, if you're if you're so running, we're not down- really looking here to say, hey, eat grass-fed red meat all day and you'll increase your testosterone. That's not necessarily <laughs> what we're trying to do here. This is a person that may not know their hormone levels or their hormone levels. They went to their doctor. They're they're normal, quote unquote, 
but they still feel unwell. So we're treating symptoms. It's almost like traditional Chinese medicine. You're treating symptoms, not necessarily numbers. And this would be someone who's on some hormonal treatment as well, but they're, maybe that helped to some extent, but they're not totally there. Yeah, if there's symptoms, you can do better. Um, mm-hmm. Simple example, like in the case of beets and, and fatigue, there's a lot of studies on people who are tired for particular reasons. I mentioned a couple. There's also studies on those who are tired for no clear reason. And there's those who are trying to boost their energy apart from being tired, like athletes. Mm. Um, a lot of research on beets, you know, um, blood doping was in the news a while back, you know, our, our guy Lance got in trouble and everyone was doing it. Yeah. So VO2 max, how well your body can convert oxygen into energy. It's an important metric for endurance athletes. Sure. It's also important for all of us who want to do a lot of stuff in the day and, you know, be active and enjoy ourselves. So blood doping, you know, have forcing your body to make more blood, taking blood from outside your body. Yeah. You can raise VO2 max 10, 15%. We now know that if you eat beets in the right ways and the right frequency, you can raise VO2 max by like 15 to 20%, like more than blood doping. <laughs> wow. Wait a minute. So how many how many beets do we need to eat to increase our VO2 max by how much? 15 to 20%? Yeah. It takes about two a day, medium-sized beets. Of course, their size varies. And it actually helps if we chew them up. Kind of a weird thing, but they've got to interact with saliva huh. in ways. Yeah. So juicing beets, which, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, my concern would be that it's very high glycemic. So if I'm juicing beets versus eating beets, those are two different things. So A, would you discourage people from eating, uh, from drinking beet juice? And B, um, is it is it is there any efficacy to drinking it versus eating? Well, it seems there's a big efficacy in chewing it, letting it mix with your saliva. I've I've used beets as a performance enhancing substance a lot for myself as like a, just an wow. amateur athlete. So with beet juice, it can help in those ways. You got to swish it in your mouth. Um, your teeth are going to look funny if you do that. Ah, <laughs> like really funny. Right. They're going to look uh, a little bit tainted, uh, uh, more red. Yeah. <laughs> Any concerns with the glycemic and the amount of sugar in beet juice versus eating beets for you? You know, it's an awesome question. So the word sugar means one thing to a chemist and one thing to a dietitian slash nutritionist. To a chemist, anything that's a carbohydrate is a sugar, right? That's right. And in a lot of cases, that word gets used across the board like they're all the same. But I'm here to tell you that beets ain't Twinkies. (laughs) But it's beet juice more like Twinkies than beets. So it's more quickly absorbed and it's also super rich. And in the big scheme of things, it's all, it's all context. It's all someone, the context of someone's total diet, how much food are they getting? How much do they need? How well can their bodies take up glucose? And yeah, if someone is harmed, if someone's at a state to where their glucose tolerance is so shot that that some beet juice is going to screw them up, the problem's not the beet juice. The problem is their glucose tolerance. Yeah, sure, (laughs) sure, sure, sure. Good point. (laughs) Beets. I think that so there's more nitric oxide from consuming beets, which, you know, if you have more nitric oxide in your body, many good things happen, certainly to men, uh, including lowering blood pressure. And I think that's welcomed to many men, certainly not all. Uh, Some already have low blood pressure, um, but also erections because you need Mm -hmm. nitric oxide to get erections. So are there any other benefits from eating beets and increasing nitric oxide? 
uh, levels? Well, you listed a bunch of good ones. Yeah, vascular health has greatly improved, which also benefits brain function. Yeah, blood pressure regulation. And that's the awesome thing about food is that food's not a drug. You know, it can give benefits like a medicine, but it won't force your blood pressure down if it's already on the lower side. If it's too high for varying reasons that can be benefited, it can help mm. with that. But yeah, it's not going to create side effects because of those same benefits. All right. So two beets, two medium-sized beets a day. Easy trick. I got a great recipe for beet cookies. You can make up a batch and just oh. have one. <laughs> beet cookies. Beet cookies. Yeah. Man, you make anything cookies. I love it. Anything. <laughs> oh, I, and that's in your book. That's in the book. Oh, I can't wait. That that <laughs> may be the first recipe I try. <laughs> um, there. If you consume a lot of beets, you eventually see it in your fecal matter and your stool, right? And yep. so then people need to be alerted that that may happen so they don't freak out. Is that right? Totally true. Yep. You can be get caught red-handed from handling beets. You're going to see some red stuff in the toilet afterward. And yeah, not not worrisome. It's a compound called betaine, you know, just as simple as the name yeah. sounds. And we hear a lot about methylation and the body mm -hmm. working better chemically. And that's another big benefit. So the body works more efficiently in a lot of ways from them. You know, I have to say, I think beets are the most undervalued fruit uh, vegetable that exists. I, re I focus a lot on broccoli and cauliflower for prostate health, but I think beets are, uh, I don't see people talking that much about beets. And I think there's a, a one, I, I would call it a medicinal food even. Totally. You know, weird thing, but um, they're like a staple ingredient in my oatmeal. I make up batches at a time. And that is weird, Alan. It's, re it's really good. You know, I'll do like uh, beets, parsnip, squash, you know, have some things diced up Ooh. and cook that in the oatmeal and some cinnamon in there. It's really good. Man, I, I knew you had the goods with the actual practicality of eating these these foods. What's a good, what's another one? What's another good food? Boy, an awesome one that people don't think about a lot is figs, you know, and oh. yeah. And thinking Eggs. about hot flashes. So it's funny. So I can always say like, you know, here's this thing that's thought to be the active constituent. Um, I don't really totally believe in the whole active constituent thing, you know, because so often we take them out. They don't work I the same that. way. So 5-methylcoumarin we think is the active constituent. The active constituent in figs is really figs. <laughs> the active constituent in beets you know, is really I Thank beets. you for saying that, Alan. <laughs> I appreciate that. I really do. You know, I get caught up in this medical world quite a bit. Uh, I work for an institution and so forth. And, you know, okay, so what's the active ingredient right what is the standardized <laughs> dose right it, and i get caught up in that i have to admit and i think you hitting the the, the, the nail in the head because i think that we're getting overly caught up with that uh, how many ingredients active ingredients are in figs and in beets and in right. all these things and they work synergistically they pull and push pull and pull that's why they give a they have benefit without side effects because they are a food and not a drug so I appreciate you saying that. Um, and thanks for figs is another one. I just, I don't eat figs. I have yeah. to eat more figs. Well, so cool thing is um, hot flashes and definitely good studies on women, probably similar effects on the mechanisms of action in men. But yeah, a couple can reduce hot flashes by 50% or more. And also- Probably not due to, it's not a phytoestrogen type of thing, right? It's probably due somewhere in the mechanism of the brain somewhere. It's thought to be more related to vascular vascular constriction of the brain. Yeah, not mm -hmm. not strong phytoestrogenic effects. I'm happy to talk about phytoestrogens as well, but not big ones from figs, no. So then men, um, certainly, actually, I'm going to recommend it. Oh, you, so, you know, 
<clears throat> some men in, with advanced prostate cancer, they are on hormone deprivation therapy or androgen mm-hmm. deprivation therapy called ADT. And um, they go, they have hot flashes. And so, you know, they go through that. Um, hot sweats and night sweats. I'm wondering um, if we can do, you know, if we can prescribe, you know, eat more figs and maybe that will help. Uh, I know that men who are not on ADT also, a few, uh, also suffer from hot flashes after a certain age as well. Mm-hmm. So how many figs? A day. This is, you know, the same number as the beets in this case, two, two a day, um, fresh or dried, doesn't matter. You know, they can, I, I, I do like to have foods cooked and mixed into things. Back to your point about like quick absorption. Yeah. I like you to absorb things gradually. I like foods to be in the context of a meal. So yeah, you can use them a lot in ways. I, I made a good recipe for carob fig balls. You know, that's one, one more easy way to have them pre-made and portable and ready to go. And Wow. I remember back in the day um, where I used to, what did I do? I used to insert a walnut in the middle of a fig. Uh-huh, yeah. And and just enjoy that. So it gives you a crunch as well. Yeah. And I'm a sucker for a good crunch. <laughs> and and all the health benefits as well. Um, I remember doing that. that. That was good. That's an awesome blend. So walnuts were a superstar in the book for fatigue along with beets. There's a compound walnut oligopeptides. And basically walnuts help the body clear metabolic wastes. So mm. lactic acid, blood urea, nitrogen, uric acid, walnuts help you clear that stuff faster and real dramatic benefits on just improving overall energy production. Love it. <clears throat> One quick question on figs. I have to ask, and I know you're going to say, Gio, what are you reading? Are you crazy? We always concern with too much sugar consumption. So that's why I asked about beets and, and sure. figs versus dry figs. There's uh, the, how that's metabolized in the body is probably different. Um, um, and again, we look at glycemic index. Mm-hmm. Are we overthinking it? Are we, or should we just eat figs and, or fig or dried figs and just call it a day? And is there, is there, is there a toxic dose of, figs, dried figs, beets, anything like that? Anything that has typically a high quote-unquote sugar content? You know, the whole sugar thing, yeah, I I go back to the whole thing about processed and unprocessed for starters. And then I go back to really like the context. So Mm -hmm. the idea about sugar, carbohydrate, totally can create problems for a lot of people. But this is something to where this is the straw that broke the camel's back. It's not that straw is bad. It's that the back was already full, you know? Mm. So... So that's that's the difference here. If someone's at a place to where they can't metabolize one more bite of fuel, then anything you throw on is bad. It doesn't matter what right. kind of straw you're talking about. So it's really not a matter of picking and choosing the kind of straw. It's about really managing the fuel load. Got it. Understood. So what kind of scenarios and um, illnesses can would somebody have to say, you know what, I'm not I'm not going to eat figs or beets. Is a type 2 diabetic? Personally, uh, my, my work about that, like with metabolism reset diet, it's more about unloading that camel's back and letting the back heal rather yeah. than like trying to mic. Because really, it's not a food. It's the total yeah. load, you know? So it's not like swapping out one kind of straw for another. Because what happens is that for most of us, if we just go on some simple rules of this is good, this is bad, and we do nothing differently, this is like taking a few straws off a broken camel's back. Before we continue, let's give a little love to today's sponsor. You know, I always say, no man wakes up in the morning and says, wow, I can't wait to get that prostate biopsy today, right? (laughs) No man does. And the PSA test, we know, is not the greatest screening tool for prostate cancer. Well, now we have the ExoDX 
prostate test, which is the only risk assessment tool available as an at-home collection kit so patients can provide a specimen in the comfort and convenience of their home. The ExoDX prostate test has been included in the NCCN guidelines since 2019 for early detection of prostate cancer, and it's a simple no digital rectal prostate exam required urine-based test for men over 40, or if there's a PSA roughly in that gray zone between 2 and 10 nanograms per milliliter to determine if you indeed need a prostate biopsy. So ask your urologist about the ExoDX prostate test. It won't heal it. You know, it's, right. it's still got big load there and it may be a tiny smaller load, but it's not going to heal it. So you got to like unload it a bunch, let it heal up, and then you can carry straw around again. <laughs> lovely, lovely. I have to ask you about organic versus foods that are not organic. For example, so we know, we know that organic foods um, are have less pesticides than herbicides. Um, um, and, and we want to- synthetic ones, Yeah. 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 So how, and, and we know about the dirty dozen. So when I recommend things and some people just can't get organic with everything, I said, look, get the dirty 15 or so. And you know, that's organic. That's from the e, uh, environmental working group website. Uh, and I'll put that link on the show notes. Do we need to be concerned about that thus far with the foods that you mentioned, walnuts, beets, and figs? So high level, you know, I guess that the choice is consuming commercial produce or not consuming produce, if that's a choice that someone's making. Mm -hmm. So we've got a lot of studies showing that people that eat produce, you know, fruits and veggies are healthier than those that don't. Yeah. And irrelevant, whether it's organic or not. Pretty much zero, pretty darn close to 0% of those studies were looking at organic produce. Mm -hmm. So we know people that add produce to their diet are healthier than those that don't add produce to their diet. So the net effect of commercial produce is positive. And if someone wants to go further and think about organic, there's a lot of things to think through that way. You know, no, no drawbacks, but certainly some things to consider. But as far as whether someone's saying, should I add these to my diet or should I avoid them because I can't find organic? That's pretty cut and dry. You want more produce in your diet. Period. End of story. Yeah. Period. End of story. What if we have more options? So I have options. I can go to the local store and get produce. I can go to the farmer's market and get produce that was grown near me and that's seasonal. Or I could go to Whole Foods and get, you know, um, uh, apple that's organic that came from New Zealand. Mm -hmm. What's the best choice? <laughs> you know, you got you to gotta rank your priorities. You know, what, what are the most important values for you? Is it a matter of supporting local industry? Is it a matter of convenience? Is it like fresh stuff that's important to you? Is it cost effectiveness? So you can all make a lot of choices and those depend upon which of those values are highest for you in the moment. Mo uh, my priority is most nutri nutrient dense and what's best for my health. How, mm -hmm. how would you rank them then? That's scenario. I've, I've seen a fair amount of data arguing about nutrient density and there's, it's not a clear consensus that way. Hmm. You know, there's not, there's, it's a funny thing. So we think about, we think about pesticides, you know, and there's, there's pesticides that we add to foods. There's natural, there's organic pesticides. There's quite a few of those. And some of those are among the more toxic pesticides like copper sulfate, for example. And then there's pesticides that are naturally occurring within the plants. And one big group did an analysis to say, okay, let's map. And this is actually done back in 1990 when the total pesticide load was a lot higher than it is today. And they said, let's map out all the known pesticides we find in these foods and give them a relative weighting given their toxicology and given the dosage and put a number on that. 
Mm. And now let's find the pesticides that are naturally occurring in the plant to do the same thing. Let's consider their relative toxicology if they were taken in isolation, how much is there, put a number on that. How do you think those numbers compare? Man, um, not, not a whole lot. What, well, what's the answer? The answer is about one to 50,000. So we one get to 50,000? We get about 50,000 load of pesticides naturally occurring in the plants. And here's one more reason why I don't get too wow. hung up on active constituents, because the active constituents that help us are by and large things. So plants have nutrients. They got macronutrients. You got fuels like carbs and fats. You got building blocks like proteins. You yeah. got micronutrients. You got vitamins and minerals, things you need for sure. reactions. Then you've got phytonutrients. Now the term phytonutrients is a generous term because pretty much all these things we call phytonutrients are phytotoxicants. They are insecticides. They are pesticides. They are herbicides that are naturally made for the plant. Sure. We happen to have evolved and adapted to where these things, our, our bodies respond in useful ways to them. The little speck of them creates this tiny trigger of, of a danger response that helps our bodies work better in different ways. Fantastic. So takeaway, the fruits and vegetables have their own herbicides and pesticides that actually probably are protecting us as well as protecting themselves. Mm -hmm. But if we can, we don't want the synthetic versions. They're uh, hormone, hormone mimicking agents in some of them and so forth. Um, and let's just say, again, we have access to um, local farms uh, uh, and, and I'm going to local farms, organic from like Whole Foods, but the food came from far away. And correct me if I'm wrong here. I typically tell people, patients, if you get it locally, get it locally. Don't worry if it's organic or not. Typically, they are organic, but they, they, they don't want to play the game uh, or the cost that's related to that stamp. Um, and local is better and seasonal is better. All things being equal. Is that a good approach? All, all good stuff. Yeah. All right. What's another food that helps optimize possible symptoms that are related to hormonal imbalances? You know, I think I think there's like two big drivers of ill health. And one of the biggest ones is just fat in the wrong places. You know, when mm. people are concerned about that for their own concern, their, their own personal concerns, cosmetics, that's all fine. But but health, you know, you know, two grams of fat in the pancreas, like a, like a couple of paper clips worth that can make someone diabetic. You know, mm. it's, it's a huge, huge difference. So things that benefit the breakdown of toxic fat are super important. That's also considered visceral fat. You know, this is funny. Um, there's all these different buckets of fat. When one fills, the next one fills. And the most dangerous one is intra-organ fat. And to be really precise, it's the, fat. it's the fat that's between the cells of the organs. And visceral fat is like the last stop before then. So visceral fat is only dangerous if it's spilling over into the organs. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> How bad is subcutaneous fat? So that's the fat underneath, under, underneath your skin, where maybe around the belly area, wherever. You know, best we can tell, it's pretty harmless. Ah. Funny thing, but the whole regime that sumo wrestlers go through, they make massive amounts of that and like none elsewhere. And and these guys are obviously massive, but they're also ridiculously healthy. They've got like no metabolic distress. <laughs> that's interesting, actually. You would it think is. they do. You would think they have a lot of metabolic distress, but that's not the yeah. case. No, they're athletes and they're, they're in good shape. And <laughs> That's a great point. I was just having this conversation with uh, Dr. Siddiqui. We're talking, you know, urologists, urologic oncology. We're talking about diet. And I was saying, and he, we were making the association of um, how uh, uh, fat in the body is associated with higher increase of prostate cancer, right? That is less, so the Warburg effect necessarily is not 
a thing here like it is in many other cancers. So the fat, uh, so uh, prostate cancer metabolically is more lip- lipophilic. And he says, you know, when you see somebody big, you know, then you say, that's a conversation. It's like, all right, lose weight. And I said, you know, there's a lot of thin, fat, slim, fat guys out there. Yeah. There's a, apparently there's a many that are fat, slim <laughs> yep. or or fat, but metabolic. Because right? it's not the fat necessarily. It's the metabolic aspect of the fat that can potentially occur. But in some cases, like sumo wrestlers, that may not be the case. Yeah. Is at, a, at a group level, most people that are way too heavy do have some toxic, more toxic fat than those who aren't. But there's a lot of exceptions. Like the sumo wrestlers are a big example of that. And you mentioned there's also a lot of folks who are not too heavy, but can still have toxic fat. So yeah, that happens. Alan, how can we uh, measure uh, uh, intra-organ uh, fat? Is there a way of measuring that? There's a lot of ways, you know, we talk about like body mass index, body weight. There's some advanced things like imaging studies that can show that. There's my favorite single metric though is height to waist ratio. There's a height pretty to weight. So not waist to hip. No, 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 no. Height, height to waist. Interesting. So we've got a lot of good data points around this. And to be really precise, it's the belly button. So it's how many inches around the belly button compared to one's height. Okay. And the biggest thing that displaces belly button girth is liver mass. So yeah, the main thing going wrong is there's too much triglyceride, too much fat building up inside the liver. And what's that? What that? What should that ratio look like? Yeah. So the easiest number to think about is half. So if I were to use really good posture, I might get away at 72 inches. You know, so my belly button that can't be more than 36 inches. So yeah. So half is an easy thing. Probably like 0.45 is healthier, but half half is a red flag. Wow. I've used waist to hip ratio. I use it mm-hmm. all the time, but I've used less height to waist. So height to waist ratio is correlated. Um, if it's higher than 0.5, to more intra or organ fat. Yep. Yeah. Fatty liver, metabolic distress, you know, cardiovascular risk, diabetes complications, all, all sorts of those, those things. I guess for the first time in my life, I actually want to be, uh, uh, well, no, I think I want to be taller for that ratio to look good because <laughs> I think I need to work on my, uh, you know, I, 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 I need to start working on my, uh, uh, my winter you know, we all gain a little bit of weight in the winter. You probably did you gain weight in Minnesota? I hope so. You need some insulation over. It's really cold. <laughs> I stay warm pretty easy. <laughs> I do good yeah. in the cold. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess uh I'm gonna do that actually. I'm gonna do that measurement. Thanks for sharing. All right, give us give us a couple of more foods that can help us optimize our hormone health. Well, the food that, that one was all that discussion was leading up to was, was onions. And ah. cool, cool thing about this book. This is stuff you've heard of onions before. These are not these are not a revelation. And right. you eat onions every so often, but how much and how often and at what point do they help? So a pretty big study showed that if you can get an extra twenty grams a day on a regular basis, you can see a ten percent drop in this toxic fat around the organs and within the organs. Twenty so, grams a day, yeah, of onions. So how many? So what does that look like in terms of just real food? Well, you know, 30 grams is an ounce. An ounce. A typical medium onion is going to be about like two, three ounces. So this is not a lot. Um, wow. One of my favorite recipes in here, I've got a healthy French onion soup that won't take all day in the kitchen. And it's really good. Ah, <laughs> uh, I love onion soup. I do too. <laughs> so I'm about to upset you here. Does it have anything to do with the quercetin in the onion? 
So that's a funny thing. They actually did this in a study. They no, looked Gio, at it's the onion. Nothing. Of course, it's in onions. Onions. Well, they asked that question in one of the studies, and they had some versions of onion that were really high in quercetin and some that were not, and they compared the effects of the two of those. And it was basically a wash. So if you read the study just at a, at a surface level, the take-home was that, oh, quercetin didn't help. But if you read the depth of the study, like everybody who ate onions got better, but it wasn't different from one group to the next. <laughs> right. Jeez. I love that. Um, so a lot of onions... Uh, recipes here in the hormone healing cookbook. One last question about onions. Does it matter if it's white onions, red onions, shallots? Any you know, the, the, physical mass, the physical mass probably matters. I love shallots. They're ones in which we use in smaller quantities. Uh, same thing for scallions. You know, we use smaller quantities of those. So the total mass probably matters. And past that point, if you're talking about white, red, or bedelias, not really a clear difference. I, I like I like the sweet ones because I, I love onions, but some people have a worse time with like their eyes getting irritated than others. I suck at that, but the sweet mm. ones I can do pretty well with. But regular yellow or white onions, yeah, I'm just a mess. I can't even function. <laughs> <laughs> Alan, give us one more food that you one of your top uh, your your top five. We already gone through at least four. What's what's another good one to 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 take care of these hormone related symptoms? You know, here's a cool one. It's a funny example too. So, you know, plants make hormones. They actually, there's a lot of ways they help our hormones, but they actually make most of the same hormones themselves. And in some cases, we're just ingesting them by eating these plants. So, mm. pistachios have insane amounts of melatonin. They actually Ooh. contain more than mel melatonin supplements often contain. But here's the wrinkle. When you take melatonin supplements, what they do, you know, good, bad, or sideways, they do rather quickly. But pistachios don't do anything quickly. But in the, in the hours after ingesting them, they make a huge difference on your body's own output of melatonin mm. when, when your wow. body would want to normally. And does it matter if it's raw or roasted? No, it's pretty heat stable. Yeah, great question. Wow. So should I eat, you know, a handful of pistachios a couple of hours before bedtime? So this is the cool thing. You don't have to time them in any special way. You mm. know, if you add them into your diet anytime during the day, you'll do a better job with your own melatonin production when your body wants to make melatonin. Wow. And so how many how much do I need to eat uh daily to by the way, there's been <clears throat> <laughs> How much so, have we added to your plate so far here? <laughs> exactly, exactly. There's, there, there is research, and I, and I have to look that it's been a while, showing uh, those that consume more pistachios had, um, had less erectile dysfunction than, than, than less, uh, than those that consume no pistachios or less pistachios, mm -hmm. um, which is interesting, actually. I re remember, I think I wrote about that in one of the books that I, uh, uh, I participated in. Um, any idea why that is not a nitric oxide scenario any idea what that would be in terms of the uh why would the, pistachios help with um erections um i had heard some theories about their amino acid profiles or some of their mm -hmm. bioflavonoids but yeah you know my, my favorite response to why something works now is just elf and magic you know if you want a mechanism <laughs> just call it elf and magic that's that's how the keebler elves make all those cookies over overnight you know so that's if we know something happens we don't know why it happens it's it's elf and magic it's elf good and magic <laughs> we were talking with the same person dr sadiq Sadiqi, uh, um because he wrote a, a paper primary author in 19, 2014 where uh, he correlated vasectomies to prostate cancer and I was like, what's the, how? 
And he's like, I think the answer would be if you use the term elfin, elfin magic. Elfin magic. <laughs> <laughs> What's the mechanism? Elfin magic. <laughs> but how did these elves make all these cookies overnight? Oh, elfin magic. <laughs> how did these elves uh, do all these vasectomies? <laughs> <laughs> or have all these vasectomies done to them. <laughs> all right. So here's a holistic but realistic question. Um, it is, I find it, um, and, and maybe you gear me in a different direction. I find it uh, challenging to cook myself. Life, kids, blah, 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 responsibilities. So I'd rather just go somewhere and get something, go to one of my favorite stores and get something. Now, I do know that uh, my wife is a great cook, um, but I don't want to put all the burden on her all the time. Um, and I do know that the more you have control of your own food, the better the food it is for you than going outside. How? What's a, a good holistic but realistic method of getting into the kitchen and doing the stuff yourself where it's not overly uh, consuming in terms of time and, and, for, and so forth? Yeah, that's an awesome question. So, you know, anything you do differently, there is a there is a change process. There's no way around that. So you yeah. can't get over the fact that when you're doing something different, that it does take more at first. Past that point, however, I would argue that when you can cook on your own efficiently, it's way faster than it is to, to go places for your food. So in mm. the book, I talk about batch cooking and I give a lot of batch recipes. And then the recipes themselves take just a matter of minutes when you have some basic things put together already. So here's what here's what's coming up for lunch in a bit, Gio. So I've got some chicken that's not cooked, but it's it's just chopped up chicken. And you can buy it chopped up easily as well. You can buy it cooked. And then I've got some rice that's cooked up and I've got some broccoli that's in florets. So that those things are done. Those things took just minutes put together. I'm going to take a pot of water and add a quart of water to a pot. I'm going to get that simmering. I'm going to throw in a tablespoon of kosher salt. Now I'm going to take a bulb of garlic, not not a not a clove, a bulb, the whole thing. We can spend a lot of time skinning and peeling garlic, right? You can even take the stems out if you want, but not going to do any of that. Take the whole bulb and just chop it in half. One cut, all done. I'm going to take a knob of ginger. I'm going to chop it twice, all done. Throw those in the water. Throw the chicken in. Simmer for 10 minutes. Pull out those big chunks of ginger and garlic. Lunch is ready. Just one example. Wow, and that's the most. That's the most. That's the poached ginger garlic chicken that's in the in the cookbook, and it's so amazingly good. This broth that you get is incredible, and you spend like no time prepping anything. So you can have the so you can have so the chicken has this garlicky gingery flavor to it. The as chicken well. the chicken cooks in this broth, and it's it's yeah. incredible garlic and ginger. We know those are healthy foods, but to have good versions of them, they take time to prep, to peel and mince and stuff. I don't do any of that. I just chop them once, throw them in the pot. And then take out the big chunks when it's done. And do you consume the um, the liquid as well? Yeah, not not all of it necessarily. I'll take a take a warm thing of some brown rice and then add the the chicken and some broth over that. I'll throw the broccoli in with it too. And I won't always drink all the liquid, but it's a it's a real nice broth that goes with it. Man, so this book has over eighty recipes mm-hmm. in it that will help with fatigue, brain fog, sleep, insomnia, all these things. I can't wait to actually. Uh, start applying many of the recipes. Um, it's called the Hormone Healing Cookbook by Dr. Alan Christensen. Alan, any final words? You know, just super brief about the cookbook. So you can just grab it and find recipes that appeal to you. You can choose recipes based on symptoms. They've all got a code that shows which symptoms they're the best at. And if there's one of those five symptoms, the weight, fatigue, brain fog, um, uh, 
sleep disturbances or hot flashes, if one of those really sings out to you, I've got a 14-day plan for each of those. And it uses oh. recipes that focus on that. It's got shopping lists. It walks you through all of it. So yeah, you can have it be very specific if you want. And where would they find it? You know, any anywhere you get books. All the, oh, all so the bookstores. Those, that, those recipes that are specific are in the book. Yeah, so the, the, all the recipes are in the book. And then the book also has a 14-day meal plan for each of those that highlights recipes that are particular for that, that symptom. Excellent. Excellent. The Hormone Healing Cookbook by Dr. Alan Christensen. I have it in my show notes. My friend, thank you so much. Uh, it's such a pleasure to have you on. Uh, you're the first... Are you the first? Yeah, you're the first naturopathic doc. Can you believe that? You're the first ND on my show. Um, Eric Arnell <laughs> is coming, Joe Pizzorno, hopefully. But, you, you know, it's harder for me to get MDs on my show than NDs, my own that's people. Fu- that's so funny. I appreciate I appreciate it. <laughs> well, you're doing a great thing here, and I'm happy to be a, be a little part of it. <laughs> Thank you, brother. All the best to you and your family. Much you love. too, Gio. Likewise. <laughs> Our next sponsor partner has a product I use literally every day. I'm talking about AG1. You know, I've been using green powders mixed in drinks for a long time. and It has not always been a great experience, right? The powder clumps up a little bit. It tastes horrible. But you know what? You chug it anyway because it's good for you. AG1 changed the game. In AG1, you have... 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day the right way. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, and energy to help you recover and focus and help you age successfully. To make it easy, AG1 is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and Five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Gio Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with.